As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If you've gone through hell and high water to have a child and then not know, in my mind, if you have good odds or bad odds, you know, being able to look at the mitigating the risk. I'm not saying like we are eliminating it, right? We're just telling you based on all of the information we have, these are the least risky embryos or embryo that you could move forward with. There are going to be potentially profound consequences if people start selecting on skin tone and hair color and eye color, you know, it could reinforce certain stigmas, there are going to be things that are unintended consequences that we can't foresee at this point. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly podcast from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How is everybody? I'm feeling good, fighting fit. I took last week off, obviously. For Thanksgiving, I ate and ate and ate. I saw family and, of course, I took part in the classic holiday ritual of running through the airport with way too many bags, child care paraphernalia hanging off all appendages, masked as well, of course, and trying to get a five-year-old and a three-year-old to keep their masks on. Super fun, that aspect of it. Highly recommend it. Um, But anyhow... It's back. I'm feeling good, feeling great. And I'm here this week to talk, of course, about designer babies. So there's a startup called Genomic Prediction. There's actually several startups working on this, but Genomic Prediction is who we're going to talk about today. And what it does is it analyzes embryos that have been created in vitro, and it screens them for an extraordinary number of diseases, ranging from cancer to diabetes, heart disease, even schizophrenia. And basically it scores all the embryos and gives them a single kind of numerical score and says, you know, basically that it don't say which one to choose, but it's obvious you choose the one with the best score. And that theoretically means this, this child would have the least chance of developing any number of terrible maladies. So on one hand, that's amazing. Everybody wants healthy kids. But on the other, this would appear to be the top of a very, very slippery slope because the technology already exists today to also screen for other stuff like intellectual ability, skin tone, eye color, all kinds of stuff. So obviously companies like Genomic Prediction are controversial because they're really at the start of what could be a whole new era in how we conceive children. And there's some pretty big societal implications there. Uh, And when I reached out to the company, they put me in touch with this week's guest, who is Elizabeth Carr. And Elizabeth comes at this from a pretty unique point of view. So she was America's first 
test tube baby, or as what you might know today as IVF. Um, she was the first child conceived in America in 1981. She was born. First IVF baby, or what they called then test tube babies. And she really kicked off this whole era where now IVF is super expensive, but still used by millions of people. It's very kind of an accepted practice. Anyhow, she now also works for Genomic Prediction. And so I brought her on to talk about where these screening tests sit in the continuum that started with her and Louise Brown, uh, who was born in the UK in 1978, at the kind of the start of that IVF revolution, and where this sits, this kind of new age of what they call polygenic testing. And really, you know, where do you draw the line between screening versus disease or versus screening to actually enhance your offspring? And this is coming. There are at least the three other startups that I know of in this space. And it's a matter of time, especially as these tests improve, where someone will cross that line from sickness prevention to, you know, human enhancement, human improvement. I mean, in a way, they're already the one and the same. Anyhow, it's a fascinating conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And then right after Elizabeth, I bring on another guest, and he is Dan Benjamin. He is a bioeconomist at UCLA who this past summer published a paper with a bunch of other academics. And what they did was really sound the alarm about this technology and trying to raise the kind of thorny issues that aren't really being raised right now from, you know, where do you draw that line to, you know, how this technology can be used, what the companies are promising, and really urging a kind of an urgent society-wide discussion of what could become a very powerful technology that starts to potentially bend society in ways that are pretty fundamental. So Dan comes on right after that. He's great, gives some really good perspective. Um, so please do stick around for that. But now I will hand you over to my conversation with Elizabeth Carr, America's first IVF baby, and now with Genomic Prediction. And just one last production note before we get started. My audio for this first interview may sound a bit tinny, and that's because we, my mic malfunctioned unbeknownst to me, so we had to use the backup recording. It still works. It's still totally audible, but so if it feels sounds a bit off, that's why. And then, But when we get back to the second interview, we're back to normal, so just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Anyhow. Here we go. So I came across you initially when I was doing a story maybe a month, month and a half ago on genomic prediction. And as often happens with my job, you start kind of going down the rabbit hole of a subject and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I had no idea this was happening. It's a kind of fun part of my gig. Well, I know you're also a journalist or a former journalist, so you know how it goes. And I'm just fascinated by this world. So I would love to understand how you got involved with the company, what your role is, and then we can get into kind of what the company is actually doing. And obviously your very unique history and what you brought, what brought you to it. Sure. Yeah. So I think the long story short is I, like you, am also fascinated by everything in the reproductive technologies world. And I am not a scientist, but I call myself science adjacent because I really love learning about science and technology, but I did not have the grades in school to become a scientist right. myself. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go down the career path of like writing about health and wellness and reproduction and all of these things that are kind of swirling around in my orbit anyway, that I think it's really important for people to understand. And I actually got connected with genomic prediction 
through kind of a PR friend of mine who wanted me to help them with a project to do some writing um, because of my background in translating things to um, the general public. And when I found out more about what they were doing, I was like, oh, well, I just want to work with you all, (laughs) all the time because this is right up my alley. And I thought it was so fascinating. So the elevator speech, you know, of what genomic prediction does is pre-implantation genetic testing, um, which basically means you can look at the health of an embryo before it's actually transferred, which kind of gives you a peek into, you know, what kind of risk you're looking at in terms of some really terrible diseases. Yeah. And um, before we get into the specifics of how that technology works, I mean, it would be interesting just to get your perspective on kind of the journey of that technology to get to a point where it can do what you're talking about. Because you were born, of of course, in 1981, and you were like in the history books. <laughs> yes. Um, as the, I think they called it back then, the first test tube baby. Yes, a term I hate, and there were no test tubes used. But anyways. I know. Well, it's so funny. It's That was the term that was used for so long. And then, uh, to be honest, I was born in 77, so we're roughly the same age. And you heard this term that kind of entered the public consciousness. And then at some point it became IVF. And I really hadn't kind of connected those two things until I started doing this research. I was like, oh, it's it's just IVF, which is like what half of my friends are using right now. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, when I was born in 1981, um, IVF was not practiced or even allowed in my parents' home state of Massachusetts. Was it allowed anywhere in the States? It's a complicated thing, and this is kind of going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but there was essentially no public funding for clinics. Right. And so if a place wanted to have a program, they had to privately fund it. And of course, this was totally unproven in the United States technology. The first success was in England. And so essentially, (laughs) the irony of how I got here is that a reporter asked one of the doctors the day that the first in the world was born. Which was when? You were born in 81. I was born in 81. Uh, Louise Brown was born in 78. Gotcha. And she was the first in the world. Okay. And so a reporter asked this doctor, what would it take to have a program here in Virginia? And my doctor always said, like, I thought it was kind of a flip question. So I gave her a flip answer, which was, well, it's just going to take money. And so the next day, they got an anonymous donation for enough money to start an IVF clinic from one of their former patients. Wow. Do we know who that anonymous person is? Yeah. You know, they finally were recognized and came forward several years ago, but I can't remember. But it was a former patient of Dr. Georgiana Jones, not Dr. Howard, actually, Dr. Georgiana. Got you. And the money that was that hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions or do you do you recall? I think it was a couple hundred thousand. Right, right, right. Yeah, back then. And so your parents were living in Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah. So how did it all come together? <laughs> yeah. So my mother had what they call three eptopic pregnancies, which are basically very dangerous. Very dangerous. She was internally bleeding three times. You know, it was basically the doctors told her you do not have a chance to have a child of your own again. And she actually had her fallopian tubes removed, which are kind of essential if you want to have a child. I've heard. (laughs) So (laughs) um, 
she was kind of the ideal candidate. Mm. And so she got this brochure from her OBGYN who said, I don't know, I heard about this thing called IVF at a conference. And it sounds like there's a program starting up in Norfolk, Virginia. Maybe you should check them out. (laughs) And so they filled out this questionnaire and her OBGYN wrote her a letter of recommendation, like almost like applying to college. And so, I was going to say, like, <laughs> sounds like it. And the doctors Jones called my parents and said, uh, how soon can you get here? Wow. And so then they started kind of, every, there were probably about 50 different couples going through different protocols at that time, because as we know, it had not yet been successful here in the United right, States. Right, right, right. So every couple had a slightly different protocol going on. So none of them knew who was going to be first. And so my parents had no idea really what they were getting into. And their one stipulation was, you know, we're going to fly back and forth as much as we can right up until the end. And then we're going to have this child in Virginia because there was no way it was basically, you know, banned in Massachusetts and we don't want Massachusetts to get the fanfare. So right, right, right. we want Virginia to have the credit. <laughs> so, and I mean, we don't have to get into all the nitty gritty of actually how it happened. You arrived, you were headlines, et cetera. And if we could fast forward or maybe not fast forward, because I think it's kind of, I think it's instructive when we get to the conversation around genomic production, what they're doing of just like, okay, there was this thing, it was new, it was unproven, a wealthy person helped get it off the ground. And then what comes next? Is it the regulations? Or is it the rush of demand, followed by regulations? Or like, how in that, you know, how did that kind of take shape? Because and I don't know what the numbers are now. But now it's I mean, it's still quite expensive, but it's very, very common these days. Yeah. So there's more than 8 million IVF babies now in the world. And essentially, you know, I have a book coming out in January and some of the book talks about just the pressure of being a first. And ironically, I think the reason that it was so widely accepted as soon as I was born was because I came out looking, quote unquote, normal, right? So I looked and sounded like every other baby. And really, the only difference was that fertilization happened in a petri dish instead of inside my mother's womb. Although I was, you know, transferred back in my mother's womb. And nine months later, you know, there I was. But I think that's where the public was very quick to kind of change their sentiment. Once they saw that this resulted in a perfectly healthy child. Right, right. So to getting to what genomic prediction does, I mean, it sounds on the face of it, great. It's like, let's figure out, you know, if you're doing IVF, because this is only applicable to IVF procedures right now, as far as I understand. So you have these, whatever, half a dozen embryos, and you can do these tests that basically say, this is the one that has the least chance of developing any number of diseases. That's basically what it is. Exactly. So, I mean, if you think about it, I, when I first learned about genomic prediction, I was not at all surprised that this is where we are right now, that we can now Mm. mitigate risk for embryos before they're even transferred back into, you know, the person giving birth. That does not surprise me. And the reason I say that is because I think seeing the industry from the inside out, like I have since I was so young, I remember when they thought that it was not going to be 
remotely possible to freeze embryos for a long period of time. And now it's like standard protocol, pretty much. Um, and, you know, it was only being done for people that had gone through cancer treatments. And, you know, I remember back when ICSI was developed, they didn't know what the ramifications of that were going to be. Um, ICSI? ICSI is when you inject the sperm directly into the egg. Oh, I see. Which is, again, like pretty standard now. And, you know, when we had in the 90s, the tests that could look at monogenetic diseases, so, you know, single genes that were, you know, carrying terrible things, you know, that was back in the 90s. And so for somebody in my seat, it was like, oh, of course, (laughs) of course, this is where we are now, because this has just been kind of the natural progression. And actually, you know, I've always thought the IVF field has been kind of slow a little bit to kind of change because really the protocols and procedures aren't that different from when I was born. So, yeah. Well, so, and the clue is obviously, I think of the name polygenic testing, because anybody who's had a kid knows that like, you know, whatever, I think it's 12 weeks, you do a certain screen, I think it's for downs. And there's, you know, there's a few other specific, you know, I think single genes they're looking for. Yes. Sacks, things like that. Yep. Right. So what is happening with polygenic testing that is different? Okay. So let me give you kind of the easiest example that I like to use. So we all know about the BRCA1 gene, right? For cancer, for breast cancer. That's a singular gene, the BRCA1 gene. That's the Angelina Jolie preemptively cutting her breasts off. Exactly. It's that gene. And that's a single gene. But there are so many more different types of cancers out there that are considered polygenic, which means it's kind of like, you know, all of these different things in different stations in the DNA and in the genes pile up and compound the problem, right? And then it increases your risk. And so essentially what this testing does is looks across all of those markers and says, okay, based on everything we know from, you know, sibling validations that we've done in, you know, sibling pairs of people that like one sibling didn't get said disease and the other did, as well as machine learning algorithms with AI, here's what we can tell you is, you know, something that's the highest risk. So this embryo might have higher risk than this one, or even some diseases we know, like if you're a male or a female, you might have higher or lower risk for a certain thing. And that's the same way when it comes to polygenic testing. So it kind of looks across all of these things and say, okay, given everything we know, here's the data we're going to give you. And we kind of give the embryos a score in the aggregate and say, okay, this one out of all the embryos that you have has the lowest risk. Of what? Well, (laughs) so it's basically like an aggregate score of lowest risk overall, because we found when you are looking across polygenic diseases, Mm -hmm. if we're reducing one, it actually will reduce the risk for all of them in the aggregate as well. So it's really fascinating. So it's basically, instead of looking for one gene in particular, or mutation or whatever it may be, it's more 
analyzing a constellation of genes that together make an embryo more or less likely to be subject to any number of cancers or several different cancers. Yep. And is it just cancer at the moment or no. what are what are you So we have a full panel of different diseases. You can go on um lifeview.com's website and see the full list, but it's things like diabetes, schizophrenia, different cancers, you know, all of, all of those kinds of things. So it's really amazing to me that we can even do this now is just so mm. It's wonderful and and not surprising, but it's also still fascinating because, you know, as I said, when I was born, ultrasound was so terrible. They didn't even know if I was going to be a boy or a girl. And I'm I'm curious. So because, I mean, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with this. Sure. Because on the face of it, it sounds great, especially anybody who has a child. All you want for your child to be healthy. That's kind of the only thing you want. But you can see where this might go, like choosing for intellectual ability, for example, or even what's happening now in terms of like Down syndrome and just the percentage of people with Downs in kind of the West, as far as I understand it, is decreasing because you can detect it early and some people choose to not proceed with a pregnancy that way. And just in the UK this week, there's a been a bill proposed to kind of establish people with Downs as like, you know, a group of people who need special laws, rules, et cetera, protections under the law. But you can see a world where, and maybe in a hundred years, you don't see people with Downs anymore. That's a whole other podcast. Sure. <laughs> but you can see you can see where this might go, where you're talking about, you know, and I'm sure you don't like this term, designer babies, where you're just like, I'm going to choose the healthiest, smartest, best looking for me child and that's what I'm going to do. And you can kind of start, well, it's like, should we be doing that? Or what are the rules around this? I mean, this just feels like a complete can of worms. Yeah. So full disclaimer, like I'm the wrong person because I'm wildly biased, right? I'm wrong. I'm the wrong person to ask this question because those same arguments were used when I was born. <laughs> and basically it was like, just because we can help infertile couples have children mm. this way doesn't mean we should. And so, mm. you know, I always look at it from the point of view of like, we've already opened that box. We can't close it now, right? Like imagine if we said like tomorrow, um, IVF is banned. We're done. We don't think it's okay. Yeah. Can you imagine how many people would not be able to have families? I mean, no. just it's mind boggling. So that's like my my first disclaimer. But my my second thing too is like, you know, you mentioned earlier the cost of IVF and we still in the United States live in a place, in a world where not every state mandates that insurance covers IVF. Yeah. There are yeah, 19 yeah. states that cover IVF or reproductive, um, you know, treatments essentially. Yeah. And if it is not mandated there, that means that you have to pay out of pocket. Tens of thousands of dollars. Like one cycle can be $30,000. And that's on the low, low end. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's not counting all the hormones and everything else. And so if you've gone through hell and high water to have a child and then not know, in my mind, if you have good odds or bad odds, mm. you know, being able to look at the mitigating the risk. I'm not saying like we are eliminating it, right? We're not doing, we're not eliminating risk. We're just telling you based on all of the information we have, 
these are the least risky embryos or embryo that you could move forward with. And the other thing is that we're not going to tell you, you must do X, Y, Z. Again, it's informing the patient of this information and then they can decide what they want to do with it, right? Like I know I had a natural pregnancy with my son and I did all the regular, just run of the mill prenatal tests, except for a couple because I had asked my doctor, well, what are the odds of a false positive with some of these tests? And some of the ones that had the higher risk of false positive, I was like, I know myself and I will be freaking out for nine months if I have information like that. And so I skipped those tests and that was my decision as a patient. And so, you know, that is really where I think it comes down to like my personal crusade aside from genomic prediction and being able to advocate on behalf of patients is, is just giving people as much information as possible about all kinds of reproductive options so that they can make an informed decision for themselves. Because you don't know what is going to feel right unless you have all the information and you're in in that moment making that decision. Um, Do your guys test, do they test for intellectual ability or disability? No, we don't do that. Do you see that as in the path more like to develop? I mean, probably not. Because that's what that yeah that's what I mean. If not you guys, someone will. I mean, because as far as I understand, the the science is there in terms of predictors. Sure. Yeah. I think you know I I'm never one to be able to predict stuff like this, but you know if I had to wager a guess, sure. I think eventually we probably could. Not we meaning genomic prediction. I mean society as a whole. But again, like. That also comes down to what does the general public feel comfortable with? Like, you know, what the the only reason IVF is available in the in this country is because everybody decided that a healthy baby that they saw meant it was okay. Right. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And how much does it cost? So generally speaking, for like PGTP, which is the polygenic testing, it's usually like a thousand dollar setup fee. And that's probably, mm-hmm. you know, most of the time through like the clinic or whatever. And then it's about $400 an embryo for the test. Right. And, you know, it's not an extra step. If you're going through IVF, you're going to have your, you know, a small sample taken anyway for, you know. And then you can test that sample with, with your test. You don't have to do it twice. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of the company, like, have you got venture capital funding or is it like profitable or like, what is the company right now? And, you know, like how established is it? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not the best person on that end of the business side because I'm more patient facing. So I can't get into the nitty gritty of that stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, we are widely available all over the country and also like even in Mexico and some other countries as well. So, you know, we definitely are very busy. Let me put it that way. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And so you're not worried about this idea that, you know, the dystopian take, which again, is not a hard leap to make of like, well, this will just be end up with like rich people creating like, you know, stronger, faster, better people than the rest of the world can make. You know, like that line between prevention and enhancement and how that's drawn. Yeah, I mean, so this is a this is a tricky one, right? Because, you know, as it is, there's a huge wealth gap and disparity for people that are going through reproductive technologies. So we know sure. already that um, the deck is stacked, right, in terms of mm-hmm. economic wealth gap. So it's an interesting question because it's not something that, I think we're going to make worse. And, you know, however, I mean, it does exist, like, let's be frank. But the other thing is, like, we're working very hard to have discussions with, you know, insurance companies and things like that. And even Mm. in my personal advocacy, like, this is one of the things I'm most passionate about is providing access for all for all, not just the people who can afford whatever, like everybody who needs access to reproductive technology should have it. Yeah. And do you see a path as this gets better, as the predictors get better? Because I know there's, you know, there's, these are kind of risk prevention, but it's not like ironclad. Because my understanding is that one of the reasons this is now possible is that just the cost of genomic sequencing went from billions of dollars to a few hundred over this past 20 years. And now we're getting better at understanding what genes do what. Again, going back to this idea of the constellation of genes, what those all do together. As we get better at understanding this, do you see a world where this becomes the way that people have kids? That it becomes so good that you can be like, well, actually, you know, everybody can keep having sex for fun. But like when you want to have kids, you do IVF and then you do polygenic testing and you know exactly what you're getting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I really, I've never thought of that. But again, I think that's just because I come from a very weird background of like, I thought everybody 
was going to have IVF kids because I, it took me when I was a little kid, like it took me many years to realize that like, that wasn't the optimal way to have children. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought everybody was going to have their own little IVF baby. So, you know, it's hard to tell. I think it really is going to be a matter of like cost and access really. I mean, you can pretty much go anywhere in the country these days and you will probably be able to find an IVF clinic. And so I think, you know, as the industry itself continues to grow up and evolve, right, it's only not to make myself sound young, but it's only been 40 years, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's not actually that long of a period of time. So, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in to see where we're going to end up. And it, it always just is fascinating to watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, it will be super fascinating to watch. Well, look, you're living proof of something that was once seen as completely off the wall bananas being coming very much not and kind of very accepted by everybody. Yes. And I'm grateful that nobody asks me the questions of, do you have a belly button anymore? Thankfully. (laughs) So, you know, I think we've come a long way in terms of uh, understanding the reproductive technology too. All right. That was my interview with Elizabeth Carr at Genomic Prediction. Next up. We have Dan Benjamin of UCLA, and he really serves as kind of the counterpoint to uh, genomic predictions take on this technology and really brings to the fore some of the, well, many difficult issues that this whole idea of polygenic scoring brings with it. So I asked Dan to introduce himself as a kind of to kick off. So that's what he does. And then we're off to the races. So here he is. I am a professor at UCLA. I'm jointly at the business school where I do behavioral economics, which is about how people make decisions, and at the School of Medicine where I'm in the human genetics department. One of the major strands of my research is on behavior genetics or social science genomics, which is about linking variation in DNA with behaviors and social, what we call social phenotypes, so things like how much education a person gets or, you know, their willingness to take risks. So the reason that I wanted to have you on is, you know, for people who don't know, we wrote about this idea of kind of what genomic prediction is up to and this idea of creating these new tests that allow you to do some pretty powerful things like avoid diseases, et cetera, which of course, who doesn't want a healthy child? But there's a whole slippery slope aspect here that I think is worth drawing out. And I came across you because you and many others wrote a paper. So perhaps you could just describe that paper, how you came to write it, and then we can get into some more specifics around some of the issues that this technology could bring up. Sure. A lot of my own research is about finding links between DNA and behaviors and social phenotypes. And one of the important parts of that research is creating genetic predictors that we call polygenic scores or polygenic indexes, which are ways of using a person's DNA as a whole to predict the outcome that we're studying. So for example, um, if we do a big genetic study of educational attainment or the number of years of school that a person attends, then we can take the results of that study and create a polygenic index for educational attainment, which then means that we could based on a a biological sample, like a a sample of saliva that we then genotype to measure a person's genome, we could then construct a variable that we use to predict 
how much education a person may get. Now, my collaborators and I doing this research, you know, we're motivated by trying to improve the way we can do social science because if we can measure genetic variables, then it's possible to do better social science research. But what we realized is that there are now a number of companies that are using the results of our research and other people's research to do embryo selection based on on these polygenic indexes and the the group of co-authors which includes a number of geneticists and bioethicists and reproductive researchers and experts in the history of science it's a it's a big interdisciplinary group of prominent scholars we were all concerned that this is getting a little bit it's happening without a lot of thought about what sorts of rules or regulations we might want to have as as a society for this powerful new tool and also frankly some of the advertising has been a little misleading and and maybe uh, exaggerating in the minds of potential customers what they might gain from from using the the technology and so we thought it was important to call attention to it and get people to start thinking so you and many others i think there were 13 in total authored this paper this past summer correct well published this past summer yeah, <laughs> probably, published this probably, past probably summer. wrote it like four years ago <laughs> yeah exactly it was y- years ago yeah right and so just so i understand so you guys have kind of reverse engineered you know people you know Assessing how people have, you know, educational attainment, for example, and then reverse engineered, all right, well, these these people share this certain type of genetic markers that maybe can be a predictor uh, of sorts, along with like socioeconomic status of how well someone might do in school or how much education they get, for example. That's right. Right. And the kind of emergence of companies like Genomic Prediction, they have been kind of using that research as a way to kind of help guide their own kind of services, basically, or what they offer or what they look for? Well, genomic prediction originally offered intellectual disability as one of the traits that they would select for. And their test for intellectual disability was based on our results on educational attainment. So they were basically looking for embryos that had a low polygenic index for educational attainment and those embryos they would label as likely to be uh, intellectually disabled. They've since stopped offering that intellectual disability as one of the traits they select for. Now they're, it's entirely, it's only health traits that they're focused on. So I've raised this with Elizabeth, but it does feel like there is, it is a very slippery slope, right? So there's disease prevention and health promotion, whatever you want to call it. That is one thing. But then if you can start selecting for other stuff like, you know, intellectual disability is one way to, to term it or intellectual ability is another and drawing that line between enhancement and just, you know, harm prevention. It feels like that is very, very vague. And I'm just wondering, based on the science and where things are today and where they are going, where is this going? Like, how granular can we get, or how powerful will this could this ultimately become? Well, on the question of the distinction between intellectual disability and enhancement, I, mean, I think what genomic prediction and other companies would say is that they were using the polygenic index just to look at the extreme outliers in the low direction, and that's fair enough. I mean, that's a way you could use polygenic indexes to focus on avoiding you know, what you might consider to be the, the clinical outcomes. Yeah. 
However, the very same technology could be used. I mean, the same polygenic index, you could look at the high end, as you say, and then, then you're in the, in the world of enhancement. And Steve Shu, who's one of the founders of genomic prediction, has said that although genomic prediction is not focused on that right now, it's quite possible that in the future or in a different country where that might be more open to it, they, they might go in that direction. So I think that is a possible direction in which we're headed. That's one of the issues that I think we as a society need to thought, start thinking about right now is, you know, do we want to put the brakes on some of this? Do we want to lay down rules that it's okay to prevent disease, but not okay to enhance? I mean, I don't know what the answers are. I don't want to prejudge that. Yeah. Um, I think they're difficult. They're difficult questions, but I don't want us to blindly go into a future where the the market demand for the services is is what drives what happens especially because you know once this technology becomes more widespread there's going to be more vested interests in maintaining it there may be pressure to keep up with the joneses if your neighbor is enhancing then you know why should you not now not be allowed to enhance so i think if we're going to have restrictions that's a lot more likely to be politically viable if we can do it before the technology becomes widespread than waiting until we've already realized that we're somewhere we don't want to be. And that's what's really interesting because when we spoke last time, one of the things that really resonated with me is like you think about education, for example. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. The five-year-old's about to start kindergarten and we're trying to figure out like find a good public school and and if we have to, we'll send them to private, but that's wildly expensive and put us in the poorhouse forever. If that's what people are doing all the time today, Versus like, all right, let me just drop 30 grand on IVF. I'll take a test and we'll choose the embryo that is like basically the smartest embryo or like the the absolute pick of the litter. And then maybe that's just on a clear dollars and cents thing. If you just choose a embryo that turns out to be a super gifted child, then maybe, you know, that's a, a choice people will make. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one thing I want to emphasize is that the power of the predictions that we can make about any individual person based on mm. their genomes is not very big. You know, right now, using our best estimates from genetic studies, people of European ancestry, it's possible to increase their expected number of years of formal schooling on average by, by about a half using the best available technology. Half a year? Half a year. That seems like a, yeah, that seems like a rounding error, kind of doesn't feel like that's, it's that significant. That's true. It, so it sounds, it sounds small. And I think it is probably small compared to what many people might think, might expect when they hear that you're making a prediction based on their genes. And it may be small compared with what you might think based on reading some of the marketing materials from some of the companies that offer this service. On the other hand, it may actually be pretty large compared with other kinds of interventions. I mean, mm. the people spend a lot of money on SAT prep or, as you mentioned, private schools. And I don't know what the evidence is on the effectiveness, but I would be surprised if it's much bigger than half a year of schooling on average. And it, it may well be substantially smaller than that. So I think that even if people have a correct understanding of the, of the gains from the technology, which are smaller than they might have initially thought, it still may well be attractive to a lot of people. Is the technology getting better? Yes. There's a limit to how good it can get. 
because it depends on the overall degree to which genes matter for the, mm. uh, the outcome, the trait. There's also a limit because when you're doing embryo selection, you're limited by the, the genomes of the parents. So that constrains, you know, it's not gene editing. You can't just, you know, max out the, the embryo on predicting educational attainment. You're limited by the set of embryos that are produced. So that puts some limits on it. But what is getting better is our understanding of the links between particular pieces of DNA and the person's educational attainment and other things, you know, whatever, all of the kind of diseases that are being used for uh, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease. I mean, we're getting better at predicting these things based on genetic data because we're getting much larger genetic studies. So I should also mention, there's also there will also be gains from the technology as it becomes possible to produce more embryos that are viable for each each potential pregnancy. Um, again, there are limits to how much that can help, but it will increase the potential impact of the technology on whatever outcomes you want to select for. And that was what I was going to ask is like, what else can we select for like today or that is totally feasible? And I'm talking about like, I don't know, eye color or skin tone or things like that? So the companies that are, are offering embryo selection based on polygenic indexes are largely focused on health outcomes, like the ones we mentioned, breast cancer, prostate cancer, hypertension. But you're absolutely right. Based on the data we have from studies, like the ones that my colleagues and I have done, we could select for educational attainment, risk tolerance, happiness, and then it would be easy to select for eye color, hair color, skin tone, which are particularly problematic uh, because of the associations that they have with the kind of social constructions of, of race that obviously matter a lot in our society. And do you have a sense, I mean, kind of is society ready for this science? Because it feels like the science is kind of galloping ahead and it's happening in the background. And everybody who's had a kid has had, you know, the test 12 weeks or whatever of okay, you know, we're screening for downs or whatever it may be. But this feels like a whole other level. And it feels like it's getting better and better, especially as the cost of sequencing a genome has basically come down from billions to almost nothing. Is it accurate to say that the tech is far out ahead of any kind of real thoughtful reckoning about how we should regulate this? That's exactly what motivated us to write this paper. We're very worried that it's it's way ahead of the mm. thought that we as a society have put into it and the potential regulations that we have in place. And we haven't even mentioned the risks of doing this kind of embryo selection. For example, there's a, a phenomenon called pleiotropy, which refers to the fact that a given gene can and usually does, in most cases does, affect more than one trait. So it may be that there are side effects. If you select for an embryo, for example, to have more educational attainment, you may inadvertently also be selecting for higher risk of bipolar disorder. And so, you know, that's something that we only partially understand. There's a lot of these pleiotropic relationships that are not yet known. And in a lot of cases, we can only, even when we do know about them, we can only partially address them. Um, and if we do address them, we also make the you know, if, if you try to, for example, 
find an embryo that's a good compromise on risk for educational attainment and bipolar disorder that, you know, is kind of offsetting. So you're not increasing yeah. the risk of bipolar disorder. That means you can't, you can't choose the embryo with the highest predicted educational attainment. So you're reducing the, the effectiveness of the technology relative to, you know, what you might've thought um, if you weren't taking into account these relationships. So yeah, so there's a lot of issues. Well, just hearing you talk about the pleiotropy, it just seems to me that it's, it's very obvious thing is like, we just don't know how a lot of this stuff works. But these scores like these, you know, you take a test and all of a sudden, like this embryo is a 1.6. Yay, go for that one. It feels like it's a very rudimentary, kind of crude way <laughs> to make a very big decision. And and we don't fully understand all of the moving parts. I mean, this is biology, the most kind of complex machine in the world. It just feels like maybe it just feels very risky. Yeah, because as you say, you might be like, wow, this this embryo. And I can think, think of myself just as a parent if I ever had to do IVF and there's like 10 embryos and there's like a bunch here. And then there's one outlier that's just like so much higher than everybody else. You're like, great, I'll do that. But maybe 10 years later, you find out, oh, well, by selecting that one because it was higher on educational attainment, it brings all these other things that we just didn't understand. Yeah, I think that's right. There, there are going to be things that are unintended consequences that we can't foresee at this point. You know, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we should think now about uh, potential regulation. I mean, the, the low-hanging fruit is making sure that customers know what they're getting into, that the advertising is presented in a, in a transparent and accurate way. And in, in our paper, we make some suggestions about what those kinds of guidelines might, might look like for companies. But then there are these issues of, of side effects and unintended consequences. And so that may affect what sorts of uses. Maybe we, maybe we want to allow this technology for certain kinds of health outcomes because we just don't think these side effects are likely to, to outweigh uh, the potential benefit, but maybe we wouldn't want to use it for, you know, something cosmetic, like something having to do with your appearance, because because there might be these side effects that can't outweigh, you know, can't make it worth it to do that. Yeah. And then there are social consequences that we already talked about. If everyone starts doing it, then maybe you feel like you have to do it too. There are going to be potentially profound consequences if people start selecting on skin tone and hair color and eye color, you know, it could reinforce certain stigmas that people have about, about appearance. I think just what you've mentioned so far is enough to kind of, I don't know, put the fear of God in a lot of people in terms of just like, oh, this is actually being offered. There's more and more startups are being created to offer this. And there feels like there's very little regulation, if any regulation. And it feels like this is just, uh, it's going to lead to some very interesting, hopefully not terrible outcomes. But it's also very powerful. I mean, you know, if best way to not get sick is to, or to get better is to not get sick. You know, <laughs> you know, if you have less chance of be having cancer, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, there's definitely great promise in this technology. It can, it could be used for some really good things. And I think most people just don't realize that this technology is already out there. Um, you know, there are things like gene editing, CRISPR, you know, that people are talking about. There've been conversations for years about what appropriate regulation like that might, might look like. There are, you know, talks of moratorium on human research with, with CRISPR. And, 
you know, while there's all that talk about about gene editing, in the meantime, embryo selection based on polygenic indexes is already happening as of, you know, already at least a year. And it's completely under the radar. And um, it's past due that we focus on that and, and think about what kinds of regulations we need to have in place. And I think it's it's urgent because, you know, once people start doing it, it's going to be it's going to become harder to regulate down the road. Um, and we should know at the outset what we want to allow and, and not allow and what the you know, what the rules of the road should be for companies that go this way. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Elizabeth. I want to thank Dan for taking the time to talk through just a completely fascinating world, uh, at least to me. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm sure it gave you some something to think about. It certainly did for me. I think it's just kind of, I mean, it feels inevitable that this stuff will become pretty commonplace, at least for people doing IVF, but maybe it becomes so compelling that people start to do IVF as just the way they conceive. Who knows where this will go? Anyhow, hope you enjoyed it. I will be writing this week, of course, in the Sunday Times at thetimes.co.uk. Find me on the Twitters at Danny Fortson or email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That's it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend and we will talk to you next week. you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.